is a Hollywood polymath and a total gent to boot. Having written and starred in Swingers, he's since had a string of writing, acting and directing credits on films such as Maid, Elf and Chef. His dramatic weight gain can only be explained by the fact that he must be eating all the food sent back to the kitchen. He also, of course, brought us to rip-roaring comic book thrill rides in the shape of Iron Man 1 and 2. I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly. Now he's been charged with reimagining Disney's classic animation, The Jungle Book, a bona fide cultural treasure much loved by film fans young and old. What are you doing so deep in the jungle? I'm Edith Bowman, and you're listening to Soundtracking, a podcast released every Friday in which I discuss the relationship between film and music with cinema's finest exponents. As with all my guests, John fully appreciates the power of this relationship. He's always demonstrated a knack for using sound to perfectly complement his visual narrative. No bad thing in the context of The Jungle Book, what with its formidable musical legacy. This is about you and music. Really? Yeah, this is maybe slightly different from what you've been doing today, but I guess that's a really good place to start with, Jungle Book, because obviously it's your new film, it's wonderful, but when you come into something like that when it comes to music, there's a very successful collection of songs there. Sure, that's the part, honestly, that I was most (laughs) concerned about. Was it? Well, yeah, I knew I had to use the music in the new movie, and it was something that I was convincing Disney of, actually, that I don't think they understood how people, how well they knew the the music, how well they knew the movie. They were gearing it more towards adapting the Kipling stories. And slowly I I worked in elements from the old film, hopefully not violating the new tone of the film. But that was another concern, is if you use too much music, then it's a musical. And if it's a musical with animated animals, you know, you're you're doing happy feet. It's different. You know, which yeah. is a good movie, but it's not what I wanted to do. And so I was trying to figure out how much music you could put in without crossing that line. And a lot of the clues that I got came from the big five animated Disney movies where you could have a world where death exists and you could have scary moments even though the the violence is off screen it's still tense and kids will hide their eyes at points but then you also want to have silly songs and, and, and you want to have relief and so I found that Disney would use music often to counterbalance the intensity of certain moments of his uh, of his classic animations <laughs> Of course, the one element we're leaving out is John Debney, who's our composer, who actually grew up on New Walt Disney and knew the Sherman Brothers when he was a little kid, and his father worked there. His father used the clapboard on Snow White when they were doing reference, so 
he was around for the whole thing. And I think he really understood the musical culture of Disney. He'd worked in theme parks. He'd composed music for a lot of things. And I've worked with him. This is my fourth collaboration with him. Yeah. And I knew he was the right guy because I wanted him to just channel those deep childhood memories of what it was like being on that lot. Hi-ho! He was able to do for one song, for Bare Necessities, we went down to New Orleans and we recorded with Dr. John on piano and Kermit Ruffins on horn. We recorded Bill Murray in New Orleans with those musicians. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. So it took on an energy that was wonderful, and Bill Murray, you know, is the type of person who really picks up on his environment and is a real person who's very present and in the moment. And, and having him down there was great energy for the musicians and for him. And I knew for that song we could get away with it because we set it up with, he's humming it earlier, we set up that every, every, everybody's got a song, and here's a moment of celebration that felt like it could feel like it fit within the reality. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and strife. I mean the bare necessities, that's why a bear can rest at ease. With just the bare necessities of life. The other one, we deviated very far from the version of I Want to Be Like You that was in the 67 film with Louis Prima. That version of the song fits into the score of the, of the film. So it's using strings and horns, and so it, it fits into the fabric. Now I'm the king of the swingers, oh, the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to stop, and that's what's bothering me. I want to be a man, man cub, and stroll right into town and be just like the other men. I'm tired of walking around. Oh, ooby-doo, I want to be like you. I want to walk like you, talk like you, too. You'll see it's true. And they like me. Can't learn to be human, too. This was going to be something that felt more geared towards Christopher Walken. We changed the breed of the character from a orangutan to a gigantopithecus, which is this uh, extinct super fauna that existed in pre-Ice Age. Not an easy lyric to get in a song as well. No, but, but we brought in Richard Sherman, who, when I told him that we wanted a new lyric because it's no longer the same story point, we thought we'd have to write the lyrics and maybe just get him to bless them. And I even wrote some stuff with the writer, Justin, and he said, these are good, but do you mind if I take a crack at them? I'm like, no, no, please. We didn't know if you'd want to. We're in a hurry. He says, no, no, what is it? Tell me about this creature. I said, well, it's a gigantopithecus. He says, what? Wait, hold on. What is it? I said, gigantic. He said, gigantic. Hold on. Give me a pen. 
He says, that's great. That's a great word. Gigantopith. Spell that for me. And he wrote it down. He says, do you mind if I try to rhyme it? I said, if you could rhyme Gigantopithecus. And he came back, he rhymed it twice. Now you might think it's ridiculous that me, a Gigantopithecus, would ever dream I'd like to team with the likes of you man cub. But together we'd have powers. All the jungle's treasures ours. I got desire. You got the fire. But the dream I dream takes two. So, ooh. I want to be like you, I want to use that flame just the same as you can do. Oh, how magnificent it would be, a gigantopithecus like me could learn to do like you humans do. Can learn to be like someone like you. Can learn to be like someone like me. And also we have Trust in Me, Scarlett Johansson. I got her to sing for us because she has such a great voice and Mark Ronson agreed to, uh, to produce that. Trust in me. singing his version of Bare Necessities that really gets into the funky New Orleans sound <laughs> as the very last end credit song that doesn't really feel like it fits with the body of the film, but somehow feels like it carries the emotion yeah, of the film. Yeah, that New Orleans carnival, exactly. everyone leaving there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly, like the, walking yeah, down like, the like main a, street. Like a parade, yeah, yeah totally. Like a second line. And I love how it ends our experience. How would you describe your relationship with music? Is it part of your whole creative process, whether you're oh, yeah. writing, directing? When I wrote Swingers, I wrote the names of songs into the script as I was writing. Of course, I wrote all Sinatra songs. We couldn't afford any of them. <laughs> you're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares. Were those tracks ways of formulating the characters and yeah. personalities of the characters as well? Yeah, and mood of, of the moment. And I learned with Swingers that music is a great way to quickly communicate and almost tune your audience together as to what this moment was going to be. And also to add depth and emotion because, you know, Swingers was something we didn't have great lighting. It was done in a rush. It was a really slapped together film technically compared to films I've done since. But the music found a way to make it feel unified and made all of that roughness feel like a choice and, and gave it a charm because that music played very cleanly almost as score. When you hear You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You, makes you forgive that you're just showing a, a, a montage of snapshots off of an inexpensive <laughs> camera. But somehow it starts to feel like a, 
you're going down in emotional memory lane and you're looking through photos of your memories. It's not an opening I would have chosen and didn't look good until you laid that track over it. The world still is the same. You never change it. As sure as the stars shine above. Well, you're nobody till some. But he loves you So find yourself somebody to love Always been involved with handpicking the yeah. music for everything. And if you look at my last film before The Chef, I really wanted a playlist, like a DJ set. Sí, sí. And I worked with Matthew Shire, who was able to help find really eclectic music that overlapped the roots of hip-hop with Cuban music yeah. and, and some R&B, and it's a really rich soundtrack. It feels incredibly authentic, the Chef soundtrack, in that it almost feels like if you turn the radio on in the truck, when you're doing exactly. that road trip, you get a flavor exactly. of your surroundings by what you hear. And there was a choice also taking a page out of Scorsese's book, because sometimes he'll use source music or soundtrack in lieu of score, like in movies like Mean Streets. <laughs> Do that again. <laughs> The other day, I ate a ricochet biscuit. Well, it's the kind of a biscuit that's supposed to bounce off the wall back in your mouth. If it don't bounce back, <laughs> you go hungry. Do, 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 American Graffiti also used it very well. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye. Yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry. You say you're gonna leave. You know it's a lie, cause that'll be the day when I die. The harder they come, did that as well. found that if you could find music that works as score, it diminishes the distance between the audience and the film. 
there doesn't feel like an artificial manipulative distance that comes with scoring. Jungle Book has a very rich score to it that I encouraged, very classic Disney score, because I wanted to make the whole thing feel like a classic film and to unify all of the disparate moments and tones throughout the film, and music does a tremendous job of that. But in a movie like Chef, I didn't want it to feel like a movie. I wanted to feel like you had a camera on your shoulder and you were filming this road trip. And the music helps with the emotion of it, but it never distances you in feeling that you're being manipulated by a, you know, a line of piano music that's being put in there, like you feel a certain emotion. And we get to hear you as well, do you? A little bit in sexual healing. <laughs> yeah. Really involved in a bit of Marvin Gaye there. We have some current Cuban music that I'd never even heard. Yeah. There's like a rap thing going on there. And then with versions like a of ragaton. songs that you're familiar with, like a message to you, Rudy, and it, you know, exactly. kind of done just, in a different way. Yeah. chef theme, which is chefs are looking at deconstructing recipes and recombining them and looking to the root recipes and mother sauces. And so music is a great way because you can't smell or taste what you're seeing, but music served as a metaphor because you had jazz covers of rap songs or you'd have the versions of songs that were used as ingredients in rap songs that were sampled. Cavern that was the hook from White Lines. Yeah. But we never play White Lines. You think we're playing White Lines, but we're really playing the song that it drew from. And little things like that, mm. little little musical jokes. I don't know what they, they are. Like characters. Yeah. It's kind of like it's like a character thread almost in a way. I, really I think so. I really think that the work you did on Iron Man, the first Iron Man film as well, you really set the tone for everything that's come since with the whole Marvel franchise. 
on so many levels on the music as well that was well the music was a big departure actually and there was a lot of pushback on that because they're used to scoring and i opened with acdc superhero movie it's expensive and yeah. you know but that made you know what this movie was yeah. and you see Humvees rolling through you know, outside the wire in Afghanistan and Tony Stark's in there with a cocktail in his hand and he's in a Humvee listening to Back in Black yeah. you, you know it's going to be a different ride So music is a very effective tool. You get a lot of bang for your buck, and sometimes you're paying a lot of dough for it. That's money well spent, I think, because it could set the whole movie up and create a tonal frame of reference and get the audience all on the same page as to where this is all going. I think Tarantino uses it. Think about, again, the Scorsese films. So I love when filmmakers put a tremendous amount of care into the selection of the music. I think it, I think it really enriches the experience. It's like somebody's DJing for you. That's what it is. And when Quentin Tarantino is putting those tracks in Django Unchained, he's turning you on to some cool music. Who's the guy who's riding to town in the prairie sun? You won't bother to fool him around when you've seen him use a gun, boy. When you've seen him use his gun. It also feels like for us film fans that we're almost getting a little snapshot of your musical yes. taste. You know, mine varies from film to film, but I wanted to lay some real New Orleans authentic music into Jungle Book. And I felt that I was introduced to New Orleans music between Jungle Book and the score for Sleeper for the Woody Allen film. <laughs> the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. That's a place in New Orleans that's been around for a long time that continues to operate where they play all the classic New Orleans jazz. As a matter of fact, when we went down to New Orleans with Bill Murray, we went down there together and it was that sort of set the table for the whole experience of having food down there in New Orleans and then recording with the New Orleans musicians and with Dr. John and Kermit Ruffins and, and so it changed the energy of the whole experience. It definitely was a great time and it, it was memorable to be down there listening to that music with, with one of my heroes who also really appreciated it and himself plays the sousaphone it seems. Wow. That's what he said. Didn't see it, just just said it. Just said it. I, 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 sent I believe him, him. I sent him a vintage sousaphone as a birthday present which he seemed to appreciate. That's not an easy thing to ship as a present. They're pretty big. It's a beautiful instrument. Hopefully he's gotten some use out of it.
You're talking about scoring. John, obviously, you've worked with on, on a number of occasions, but you've also worked with other composers as yeah. well. That's quite an intimate relationship, isn't it? And there's a lot of trust. Yes, and, and nowadays less so. I remember I was in a film, Rudy, and the director had come out of a session with Jerry Goldsmith and was like, oh my God, this score is so beautiful. They had recorded the score and he really heard it for the first time because in the old days, they might pull you you know, over to a piano, they play you a few themes. Maybe they'll have a temp score cut together for certain scenes. But in the pre-digital days, that's about all you got. Now, you'll have music editors, you'll be pulling pieces from other scores, they'll edit together something that feels like a full score. So you're watching the film with what is a temp score that feels tailored to your movie. And then a guy like John Debney will play you not only themes, but do uh, arrangements on his synthesizer. So when you're listening to his music, you'll lay that against your film and you'll feel pretty specifically what you're doing. You can say, well, this part should be a little scarier or this part's a, you know, you're accenting it at this moment in the scene, but really it's the end of the next shot that I think is the punctuation. John Debney's wonderful because he'll write it a half dozen times for you until you're happy and there are certain problem moments, especially a film like this with so much digital work where you don't always have time to make it fit exactly right visually because yeah. you run out of time. And so a lot of times it relies upon your composer and I'll say things like, look, John, we never really got there completely with the shot. It's not a scary enough moment. We really want to have a little bit more impact. Could you accent it with the music? And he'd be like, yeah. And, you know, that's something where you could, that's sort of your last chance to give it a little bit of a creative twist. go without mentioning the music in Elf. It's... That music almost got me fired. Did it? With you. Yeah. How... Well, because they thought it was too old-fashioned, and they were like, change the, the music in really? the movie. Yeah. That was a time when comedies had current artists that yeah. could have made it feel a little bit more of the day, a little more modern. And I liked it feeling timeless. Mm. And now that it plays every year mm -hmm. uh, on Christmas in, in the UK, the United States. Well, we played States. it by October. I mean, come uh. on. <laughs> I think that that makes it feel instantly like a classic. And so even when it's only been out for a few years, it feels like it's been around since your childhood. There's a Louis Prima song in there. It's funny because I've stuck Louis Prima in almost every film I've done, except the one that had Louis Prima in it, Jungle Book, <laughs> where I switched it completely. And every time it rains, it rains. Panthers from heaven. Shoo do be Don't you know each cloud contains Panthers from heaven? Shoo do be You'll find your fortune falling all over town. Be sure that your umbrella is upside down to be live up. 
It's a really fun album, too. Yeah, really Arthur Kitt and Stevie Wonder yes. and Marvin Gaye. It's great. Yeah, Ray it's Charles a... and Zoe as well. And Zoe, that oh. wasn't in there when I first wrote it. Then when I hired her and realized that she was a singer, I added that set piece. What a beautiful, happy accident. if I'm wrong but I think the only track that you've used in two films one obviously that you've written in Swingers and then also in Iron Man 2's Average White Band uh -huh. pick up the pieces In two, in, Iron Man two, as a as sort of a nod mm -hmm. to probably a little nod to, to swingers. swingers. I haven't watched that film in a while, but yes, that sounds right. <laughs> I like that. I like yes. the fact you did that because of that. I did. Yeah, I think I did as a little, <laughs> a little shout out to that one. Yeah, sometimes when I'm in the middle of it, I'll throw things in there for people who follow my work. But sometimes they know my work better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's the geek in us coming out. I like it. Is there a track or a piece of music that was used in a film for you that you that really stands out and reminds you of being a kid? I'd say American Graffiti. You know, that was a time that I was not alive. Where were you in 62? That was the line. And I was born in 66. And I think a lot of music was even older. It felt like a 50s movie, even though it was set in the early 60s. And that really set my nostalgia for a time I'd never been around. It was a great soundtrack. Wall-to-wall -wall music as played as source through the car radio. My God, that was a magnificent movie. It made a great impression on me. Don't you give me no dirty looks. Listen, congratulations on, on Jungle Book. You know, I went with my seven-year-old and it's absolutely magical. And keep putting great music in your films because if nothing else, it introduces my kids to some awesome tunes. That's so great. They're big fans of ACDC because of you. That's great. That's what we want to do. That's our job, right? As yeah. filmmakers, storytellers, we're here to, to hip the next generation to what's cool. Whether it's, you know, uh, stories, the old stories that we tell time and time again, or music that they might not be into. And I think when they're young, it makes a bigger impression. It's a lot easier to make an impression on people who haven't experienced a lot of things. And if they see something that's cool, that might stick around for their whole lifetime and affect their tastes. John Favreau, absolute pleasure, sir. Thank you very much for your Cheers. time. Thank you. Cheers.
from the score to John Favreau's remake of The Jungle Book. That's The Rain Returns by John Debney, concluding this, our latest instalment of Soundtracking. My huge thanks to John for taking the time to talk to us. What a thoroughly charming and entertaining fellow he is. The Jungle Book is available on home entertainment formats now and I highly recommend it. Don't forget you can find a track list for all our shows by heading to edithbowman.com where you can subscribe to this podcast so as not to miss a single episode. We also have a dedicated Facebook page and Spotify account which allows you to listen to the music in its entirety in the order it appears. Follow us on Twitter, we're at Soundtracking UK and you'll be in with a chance to win prizes relating to the films we discuss. Indeed, there's still vinyl copies of the soundtrack to Ben Wheatley's High Rise up for grabs, if you're quick. I'm Edith Bowman and you've been listening to Soundtracking, a weekly celebration of music in film, which comes out every Friday. Our next guest is Matt Ross, whose new film Captain Fantastic is undoubtedly one of my films of the year. I look forward to the pleasure of your company then.